It's hard to be violent when you got flip flops on. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksway Collective. Today, we talk about Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. We have an ethical framework for living in a post apocalyptic society. This and much more in the upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. All right, let's do this. It's time to take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> you should have saved that for the pause, man. <laughs> no way, that's going in. That's going in. <laughs> I think we just have our intro for the episode now. How can I possibly top that? <laughs> the name of the episode, Oliver takes his clothes off. Finally. Oh All right, baby, let's make some children of men. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, I cannot wait till we turn the video portion back on and see what uh, all three of us turn out. Yeah, this is just a, a little disclaimer. We, we're on Google Hangouts and we turn the video feature off. So yeah, in case you context. Um, okay, so here we are. We're back. This is episode eight. Uh, today is actually our first movie episode. Well, kind of um, second. So we're very second. excited. You're right. It's fuck. It's our second movie episode. Kind of. This is our first standalone movie yeah, episode yeah. where we talk about. A movie in itself with no papers attached, no strings attached. It's called Children of Men. So this is actually Brendan's recommendation. So as per usual, um, Brendan, tell us a little bit about uh, why you decided to bring this movie to us today. So first off, Children of Men is by far one of my top five favorite movies of all time. I think it's one of the finest examples of science fiction movies out there. Uh, what happens is essentially the fertility rate of humans drops to zero and the world falls into disarray because of this. Uh, there's um, one government that basically remains standing, which is the British government, and all the refugees start to flock there in hopes of living in an organized society that retains some of the humanity that we currently see today. Um, and then despite the fertility rate, reaching zero, uh, they find this one woman who's able to hold a child, and uh, she kind of falls in the middle of this uh, societal conflict where there's a terrorist group that wants to use her for a political agenda, and then other people who just want to save her and make sure she gets these people that, can, that are researching fertility. Uh, and we get to watch Clive Owen, a man who plays a guy named Theo, just guide her through this crazy, crazy world. All right. So yeah, I, I actually agree with you. This is one of the best films that I have seen in a long time. This is a rewatch for me, but I it was a, it's been a couple of years since I've seen this. And I was telling Oliver before we hopped on um, recording, like this film really does um, lavish in a rewatch as well. Even the fact that you know what's coming, you know what to expect, not take away from it at all. I think... Because it's such a, as you say, masterpiece of science fiction, science fiction, and I also think it's just a masterpiece of filmmaking in general. Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I absolutely love this film. Um, what do you think of it, Oliver? Yeah, the cinematography is amazing. The production design, especially, like the the um, refugee camp, is spectacular. Spectacular design in that in that scene. For me, the greatness of this film starts in like. Maybe it's first scene where the main character walks into the coffee shop and you have 
all of these people crowded around the coffee shop's television, and it's giving you basically the introduction to the film and the world um, via news story. And the oldest person or the youngest person alive has just passed on. Um, and then you have this kind of uh, scraggly main character sifting through the crowd, not really watching the TV and just grabbing his coffee. So you get the sense he's a little bit detached from what's going on around him. But where it really was amazing for me is the second that he grabs his coffee and then begins this sweet wonder, the second that he walks out of the coffee shop and you see the streets of Britain unveil itself to the viewer and all that has gone on in the meantime um, between when people became infertile and then I think it's 2027 where the film starts off and just the level of, I don't even know, just dismantling of society that is all around is absolutely fucking chilling where uh, the environment still looks like Britain, but it's just an absolute nightmare version of it. And I thought that that was so well mm -hmm. done as he's walking through the streets. So yeah, if we're to start there, like the world building in this film starts from that first scene and I'm all over it. Yeah, there's those subtle uh, features that uh, give you a hint that it's way in the future, right? Those Like the signs, the advertising on the bus. And it's one of those familiar, but also so strange yeah. at the same time. I think you that get makes this it uncanny even, feeling. Yeah, that makes it even more terrifying, I think. Yeah, and I think that, well, this is more broadly maybe my favorite genre of science, science fiction where it's set in that kind of near future. So it's... Like the, the sci-fi stories are a little bit more grounded um, and seem a little bit more realistic. And because of that, it seems so much more chilling because nothing in this film seems to be outside of the realm of possibility for what we human beings could reach by this year. I mean, of course, we're not necessarily on that path. I'm just saying it's totally realizable. There's nothing here that's complete fantasy, I think which one makes of my, it more terrifying. One of my favorite parts of that opening scene is the very fact that even if you're coming into this movie with the understanding that the movie is about the fertility rate reaching zero and the consequences that follow, it immediately sets you up with this one scene where something occurs and you're just, you're pulled into that moment. You're pulled into the movie because it all makes sense and it's all logical and you can understand how humanity would get to that state as a consequence of what preceded where all of a sudden there's this glorification of the last born person, the youngest person, and of course how that hope and optimism, what very little of it is left, would be completely shattered in the passing of this individual. And then of course what happens afterwards where another individual is deemed the youngest and everyone's swarming around it, there's so much media attention, it touches on a lot of different human qualities uh, and the extreme, uh, the extreme aspects of it that come out in the form of, uh, like in the aftermath of such a dire event, uh, it touches on the human desire for hope and optimism and the way that they latch onto them as this, uh, like this figurehead. And then it touches on the human need of like, uh, media obsession where after their death already, they're trying to find the next youngest person and obsess over them as an individual. So in a very short amount of time, we are drawn into this universe, we are introduced to its extremely logical quality, 
and we are further enlightened to elements of the human uh, of human qualities that are within us all. Right, and I totally love the point you're making. And to just build on that, um, one of the things that makes the introduction in the film as a whole uh, so strong for me and so emotionally impactful and so fucking chilling is because all of these things that are manifesting in this futuristic, I don't even know, just in this future society are, um, like you say, some of the more deep human traits that we have already manifested in the past. This film is drawing from so much of our humanity that has already been expressed um, in the past and in the present and using that on the future. There is nothing necessarily new introduced into the future society here. All of it is stuff that human beings have already engaged in or um, already latch onto or already express themselves um, in certain ways. And it's this film is basically just the culmination of so many of those things. Like you say, the media obsession, the, you know, the subjugation of uh, minority populations, the way that, you know, societies can devolve when they lose a sense of core optimism or some sort of uh, central goal to strive towards. None of these in a vacuum are novel concepts, but when taken as a whole and then imagined in a kind of future society, I think because it's grounded in so much realism, it makes it so much more terrifying. The way that I was introduced to this movie, and I'm really thankful to the person who introduced it to me. His name is Connor. Connor, if you're listening, thank you. You're probably not. I haven't talked to you in a long time, but thank you. <laughs> the way that he introduced the movie to me, he said, imagine that there were going to be no more children on it. How would that change your behavior? And you don't really think about that question in time in your life and yet in watching that movie I felt like every single scene painted this picture of this picture of uh, kind of exploration of that subject and it all felt very in line with my own personal intuition it's like how are we supposed to operate on an ethical core when so much of our ethics and morals are about a societal preservation and that preservation is now no longer an option Thoughts, Oliver? Putting me on the spot. Damn it, Yana, he's new. He's not ready for this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, It's such a strange thing. Like, like you said, it's not something that you think about every single day, um, how one would act. But I think that you're right. So much of that, so much of what makes, again, this is a bold claim, but um, I think that this film would probably agree with this argument that so much of what makes a society function, however well or however poorly, is based on the fact that there is some sort of future in mind, whether that's a more utopian ideal or just some sort of uh, form of progress or something that society is working towards or trying to preserve or hold on to through tradition. All of it involves some sort of future interest and some sort of level of preservation, both on the level of the individual and on the level of the group. And yeah, as you say, when that future interest becomes absent, how is it that people will behave? And this film seems to make the argument that without that future interest, human beings really do devolve into a more primal, you know, kind of like the, the concerns about morality or fellow fellow human beings around each other, like the, all of that kind of melts away, which is very interesting. And, you know, of course, there's, a, there's assumptions baked into that too, but uh, it wouldn't make for a very good movie that if 
if you know the when you lose that future interest, people all of a sudden care so much about their fellow human beings that are existing at the time, um, and you know seizing the rest of the life that is left to them. Um, I mean, both both ways you want to take it uh, involves a, a certain level of making assumptions, but that that future interest really does bind things together, um, whether that's working towards a communist utopia or um, just working towards just a regular functioning liberal democratic society. One of the questions um, that I, I kind of wanted to pose to the two of you in coming into this discussion is if you thought of any ethical philosophies that this is something that it could apply to, the fact that ethics and morality would be for a societal preservation and with societal preservation no longer being a thing, we have no more obligation, or at least there's no perception to have an obligation to moral and ethical uh, attitudes and actions. Um, well, yeah, I think that baked into our moral systems today is that exact assumption, right? That exact expectation, you know, maybe even taken in a more broad sense, like morality is nothing but a way to behave or in a social context to ensure a better future context after that, right? So, so many of the ethical systems that we have today, one of their very essential properties is the expectation that you will be living in a society that intends on preserving itself, intends on reproducing itself, and intends on you know, having human beings interact with each other on a generation by generation basis. That is their starting point. And then any sort of guidelines or guidance that they give only build upon that. Um, so to come up with a different system of morality that helps human beings interact with each other when there is no future, quote unquote, uh, you would basically have to start from the ground up. I don't know. I think that one of uh, the more interesting things about this this film is that Although things devolve and things fall apart, there's still some level of function here, right? People still have jobs. People are still living in apartments. It is not all-out anarchy. Um, there's still a strong military presence, but at least the white people in the film have maintained some of their level of autonomy and freedom. So things have not gone so far as to collapse into chaos. There's still some sort of framework there. There's obviously still some level of morality operating in the society of course is starting to disintegrate but the way the timeline of this film at least we're placed in a kind of middle ground where things have collapsed a little bit but they have not gone so far to be completely so far gone yeah i agree with that because they're still they're still trying to find a solution right they have the fertility mandatory fertility tests um, there's another element in this movie of there's a particular group that I think they're called the, um, they're like the religious people. Remember that scene? Right. Um, and they're like, we need to repent or whatever. Yeah. They're like the flagellants, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's also the element of the quietus or whatever it's called. So there's, there's outs that people right. can take. Yeah. And I thought that it was very interesting. How do you, why don't we just linger on the whole quietest thing for a little bit? Because I thought this was so interesting, you know, just building on that whole, the future is is gone. Like there is no striving towards any sort of future goal. And then the answer to that, at least from 
the only real brand or company that we come across in this film via advertisements and their logo everywhere is a company that basically, you know, you take their serum or whatever it is and you die quicker, um, which is like such a strange thing to be so popular when, yeah, the future context is gone. So you might immediately think, okay, well, you do what you can with the time that is left. But instead, the speeding up of that zero future uh, state is facilitated by this quietist, or I think it's called quiet, quietist um, drug that makes people basically just kill themselves faster. What, like, what an interesting phenomena. It just reminded me of our philosophical suicide and absurdism discussion, kind of. Right. And in, uh, in what way? Well, just those three elements, right? The, there's the religious part, there's the quietist. And then there's the people who still try to find like some sort of scientific solution. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, and of course, this is just drawing from another aspect of human nature manifesting itself in the future. But there's so many individuals in this film who make the decision to give themselves over to something else. Yeah, yeah, um, cause like the fishers. Yeah, yeah, like the fishers in this case, the flagellants or whatever they were called, they're giving themselves over to the whole repent to God, whatever's going on. And even the people who and the cousin uh, decide, who's the cousin? The rich cousin. Right. Yes. I want to come back to him, actually. Right. I was going to say, just to finish the point, like the people who decide to take the quietest serum as well, they too are giving themselves over to something uh, in a way as well. And it's, it's a very few number of people. And I think that... Um, obviously, the main character may be an example of this, who chooses to truly carve his own path throughout the entire the entire film. But yeah, to come back to that, the cousin. There was a really but, good line that, or like uh, interaction between the two of them. Theo says, "A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going?" And the cousin replies, "You know what it is, Theo. I just don't think about it." Right. You know, in a way he says it in a kind of humorous way. And like you can kind of see the environment he's living in. And even in the intro scene when he's coming into that the royal area, like the entire like that's his British aristocracy land right there, right? And so I bet you every single person living in that sort of environment is echoing the same sort of sentiments like you don't want to think about what the fuck is going yeah. on around you. Block it out, live in denial. And just live out the rest of your days um, serving your own best interests. Um, so on one hand, yes, I am. It's quite despicable to hear him say something like that, especially from the outside, from the armchair. Um, <laughs> we can condemn him and all of those people in that uh, in that land, like that nice, like aristocratic land, all we want. But at the same time, by condemning them, I'm kind of contradicting what I was saying earlier, like. You don't have much life left. Seize the day. Live the best fucking life that you can. <laughs> Why bother preserving the future if there is none? So they might also just be falling in line with that, just, you know, <laughs> living their best life, so they say. I know, I was, I was quite conflicted on this character. What do you think? It's, it's interesting because, like, the instinct of the individual in this situation is to just go for pure self-fulfillment, seems that there is no real society to feel an obligation towards or feel like any type of ethical dilemma towards. But I think the question that is most pertinent when discussing this cousin is whether that was a characteristic that he had 
before the occurrence and before the fertility rate dropped to zero, because I think the difference between um, the difference between how like an ethical individual would approach the situation and how he approached the situation is that I mean, he's living in luxury. He's uh, looking purely for self fulfillment without. Uh, any sort of obligation to anybody else, but he's doing so such like an egregious, over-the-top way. And to me, there's an indication there that this is him coming into his character, him his characteristics being kind of expanded upon because of the consequences of what's happening around him, almost to the point of moral luck, where his self-fulfillment and selfish nature is now kind of being warranted. Right. Yeah. And so he might have a certain temperament and that has been kind of inflated by the environment around him, right? Whatever sort of things that were being counteracted or combated by society have been removed. So then pure temperament and pure uh, uh, self-interest that it was inside of him is able to, you know, bear fruit and become, become whole um, and live without any sort of negative backlash. I was thinking now, as you were saying, you talked earlier about the kind of what are some other ethical theories that we can operate uh, when we find ourselves in a society like this? And again, of course, I, I'm gonna, I don't have enough information on this, but think of the ones that we use today. We have like consequentialism, which really at the foundation of that is it doesn't really matter. The consequence, you know, of course it's, the outcome matters yeah, most, right? It's, it's all that matters is the outcome, right? Whatever sort of actions you take to get that consequence, as long as it's better than a different consequence, so be it. Of course, that's dumbing it down. You have more deontology, which is much more concerned with just specific non-negotiable acts of moral duty and a huge concern with consistency across every single case and every single instance of the same thing. There are certain non-negotiables. There are certain things that are just are the case, and you must do those every single time. Neither of these work very well in a context like in Children of Men. But then I just realized that there's actually some other uh, ethical theories that may actually work a little bit better in a case like this. The first one that came to mind as you were talking, Brendan, is just virtue ethics. Um, I think this is actually Aristotle, who really just talks about like, it's not like the way that you live a moral life is not necessarily looking to maximize utility or bring about the best consequences, nor is it becoming a moral saint and following every single moral absolute that there is. Instead, it's actually going about your life, constructing what you think is a virtuous character. So because of that, there's no necessary need for consistency. You just act as if or however you think a virtuous man or woman would act in that time. So you have a huge amount of flexibility. And because of that, even if there is no future interest and no future consequences to bring about, there's still a, some sort of a framework there that will, quote, not, not necessarily force you, but will encourage you to act very well towards your fellow human being, regardless of consequences or duty. And the only other one that I know of, don't know much about it, I would actually love to do some reading on this, and that is uh, the ethics of care, which is, I think, comes from more of like a feminist background, where the ethics of care at the foundation of that, again, is not moral absolutes, is not consequences, but instead, the most fundamental part of this ethical theory is actually how you conduct your relationships with the people around you and how you, um, like, just benevolence and caring for them is a good in itself. 
and just acting in a caring, uh, compassionate, thoughtful way to the people around you, regardless of consequences, regardless of moral duty, this also might be a much better ethical framework to operate in the society seen in children of men. So is that a branch of virtue ethics or is it something completely different? Actually, not sure. Um, it sounds again, like I said, I'm, yeah, I think that both of them are kind of in the same realm. Uh, sim- similar, right? And they focus very much on individual action. They're not looking for large scale consistency. They're not looking for something to be done the same way every single time. It's very much case by case basis, depending on individual temperament, depending on the context at the time. So yeah, again, don't know too much about either of these. Would love to know more. So here are two alternatives to maybe look into to answer your question or from earlier, Brennan. I really don't know too much other than I know that I want to know more. Let's talk a little bit about, there's a scene where the main character talks about, or not the main character, the main female character, Key. she talks a little bit about, um, like she had never known what a pregnant woman was like and no idea what to expect. But then it, she talks about how she just knew and it was this baby that was inside of her that made her, I think she literally says it made her feel alive, which is interesting. One, like how the infertility rates can really deal with the kind of subjective experience of all of the people, right? Maybe, like their kind of existence, do they actually feel less alive? And I can't imagine the the weight of this on every individual here. And But also the other thing that I brought up was if it is the female character that feels alive when she has a baby and does not feel alive when she does not have this ability to reproduce, what is it that the male characters are feeling? Because they are not necessarily missing anything. Are they also feeling this kind of existential um, emptiness? Or is there something else that is uh, making them feel dead inside? I was just more confused and curious about this. Um, I think the men feel that existential crisis or whatever. Because remember Theo, the beginning of the movie, when he enters Jasper's uh, hideaway for the first time, they're talking about what you do. What did you do on your birthday? He says nothing. And then he says a line, same as every other day, woke up, felt like shit, went to work, felt like shit. And then... Later on, when he finally meets Key, you see his him change, right? He becomes more alive. Yeah. And you know what? He, f- he starts off as a kind of, you know, I don't know, you want to call him a nihilist. Sure. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? He's just a little bit cynical, um, sees very little hope for the world, but he finds some sort of reason to continue on, some sort of reason to, you know, whatever it is, do good in the world. I think that going back to what we were talking about earlier, he finds some sort of future interest to work towards, which really might be the most fundamental thing. Uh, here is not necessarily the babies, not necessarily the fact that human beings need to be fertile or need to be able to reproduce to feel alive. Although, of course, that's very important, but it may be even more fundamental for human beings to just have something to work towards in general to uh, not feel this existential dread. I really like the fact that you touched on like the reason of being, because that's something that I didn't consider in my first watch through of the movie i think the first time you watch it you're very much taken in by the environment but then the second time around watching it you get to see the characters for their motivations and get more of a glimpse into them and how they're reacting reacting to the circumstances and i think um the ability to foster life is not only the ability to create something but the ability to kind of I don't know if this is the right terminology, but the ability to recreate something and create something new, like instill some type of change. And I think you see the characters gravitate to different situations 
in a reactionary sense to that. Like you see the people who are in this uh, radical group, uh, the fishes, there's some of them who want to make it all political. And that's the way of instilling some sort of change of like doing something different in the universe is through political means. And then you have someone like Theo who had that opportunity of creating something new, of fostering something new with his child. And that opportunity was lost. So he falls into a depression. He's got this nihilism to him where he has no reason to be. So I think it's saying something about the human desire to do or foster some sort of change, growth, development, whatever have you. And the way that the characters react simply illustrate different aspects of themselves and what they're drawn to in trying to instill change. Like Michael Caine's character. Michael Caine's character, to him, it's just he starts dealing drugs, right? And to him, that's all he needs. But some people, in the absence of the ability to create and foster life, require something more extreme. And that's why you have these terrorist groups and these really intense physical altercations between parties. Can we just briefly talk about... Because there's some clues in the shots of the newspapers as to what happened. If you guys just want to briefly touch on that, because it says like there's like a nuclear fallout. Like what happened? Yeah, like breadcrumbs, right? Plenty of breadcrumbs. Yeah, like um, maybe it's not important to know, but it's kind of cool. I, th- I think it. I think it is important. And one of the things that I wrote down, uh, more as a quote. This is a quote that I thought was just absurd, but like sad and ridiculous. But there's a scene where they're they're in the refugee camp. And they're getting kind of siphoned through that S-shaped uh, cage as yeah. they, you know, put them, put all the human beings through there like cattle. And on the large, I don't know what you call it, on the speakerphone, it just keeps repeating, Britain supports you and provides you shelter. Do not support terrorists. Britain supports you and provides you shelter. Do not support terrorists. And that was like dark as fuck. But there is all of this kind of state propaganda sprinkled through the entire film. This is only one example. There is a scene early on in the bus where there's some sort of very small TV screen and it shows shots of all of the different countries around the world and all of the peril and how fucked up they all are and how the world has kind of gone to shit. And that is Britain's justification for um, how great and well-functioning their society is and also provides huge justification for them exporting and deporting all of the uh, refugees out of the country. And then you watch this and you're like, okay, well, Britain's kind of fucked, but the rest of the world's also way more fucked. But then it's like, wait a minute, you have no idea. Yeah. What if Britain is like the worst offender here? There's nothing here necessarily to suggest that Britain is above and beyond every other country in terms of stability. Even though things are bad, they're much worse elsewhere. That's all All that we see in terms of what's going on around the rest of the world is state propaganda. Yeah, even the way that... Uh, so remember that the classic scene in the movie where they're driving and then they get ambushed by the fishers? Right. So it happens, and then later on you see the news report of that same event, but it's different. It's radically different. Yeah. So I think that you just have to keep in mind that there is this huge filter. And so the viewer of the film is experiencing that same filter that all of the people in British society are experiencing. We as the viewer get no additional information in terms of the world context. We see only what 
Britain, the state, presents to its people and to us as the viewer. So because of that, it just makes me extremely skeptical. And you know what? Like, there's no fucking chance that Britain is the most stable country on the planet when this happens, right? There's not a fucking chance in hell. So... Yeah, I know. I thought that was. I just thought that was like very, very interesting, and kind of just speaks more towards like all of the the little hints around the whole through the news and the papers and the yeah. things like in the TVs stuff like and that. He, um, even Jasper's wife, the little clue there, right? The the tortured the quote yeah. journalists. Yeah. Did you get the sense that she was one of the people who was tortured? Yeah. Or she reported on it. And yeah, maybe she reported something, and then that's why she's all shell shocked, or I don't know what was. Yeah, no explanation there, right? All you have is the news stories, but like uh, maybe she was tortured and that's why she's like like PTSD. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Curious. Very and, few questions. And Jasper's also a political cartoonist, so that could explain why they're in like living in a hideaway kind of thing. I would have loved to have just gone through a third time and just paused the film and tried to get a closer look at some of the news articles everywhere and just see what's going on. Any other examples of this? Like the hidden gems? Yeah, or any sort of indication of what happened before or, you know, just like why the state is acting as it is, why, how the fuck the state can make the connection between there being no fertility and then all of a sudden only the natives of Britain, only the white people are capable of living in a functioning society. That was quite the leap. There was also a flu potentially in 2008 or something. So that's how... That's how their son Dylan died. Right. So unrelated to um, the infertility or no? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I would love to have known what went on. I was just going to say, there's just a ton of hidden gems in this movie, which make it even more amazing. Yeah. And I think that maybe not knowing and having it be so arbitrary and random only adds to that kind of existential dread that the people feel like they're not only not reproducing, but it's not as if you can trace some sort of plague or consumption that has ravaged the entire earth like if no one has any fucking idea what's going on um it's totally out of the hands of human beings they have been totally swept away by something that they don't even know what has hit them which certainly doesn't help the (laughs) well-being of the people who are being affected a question for that i have for you too to consider is in not knowing the origin of the occurrence and not knowing what happened how does that affect uh, your perception of the consequences? Do you think that if you had a notion of what happened, then you would be a little more prescriptive in how you perceive the future? Like if you think that it came from something that was apocalyptic, that the behavior would be changed accordingly? Yes and no. I think that people like to have control over things or think that they have control over things. I'm of the mindset that we have control over very little or nothing (laughs) that happens to us, but there is still this thin veneer of we can conquer the world around us, whatever is thrown our way, we can stop or combat or overcome. So much of this act of overcoming is what gives humans that reason for being. Um, But if you don't even know what to overcome, you are left completely aimless, right? There is not even a direction for you to point in to fight against. There is no sort of enemy. It doesn't even need to be a human enemy. It can be an enemy that is a disease or a plague or a natural disaster. Any sort of enemy is lacking here as well, which is why the human beings work so hard to create one that is the refugees. 
I think that uh, actually having a conflict in the society doesn't have to be a conflict between human being and human being, but between man and environment, um, man and plague, whatever it is, that conflict is better than not having any sort of information or knowledge to act upon. I think that it's a much worse state to be totally blindsided and totally aimless. I love the point you make on the refugees and how they become like this figurehead for, or like this figurehead or like this galvanized scapegoat. Yeah, I like your point about how the uh, the refugees become a scapegoat in this situation, a figure of what's happening out there that people can uh, point their negativity towards, because obviously that's something that we see very much in the present day. I really appreciate your point about the refugees, because I think that's something that is pertinent in the present day, and the fact that they're used as a figurehead, uh, that they're a scapegoat of negativity in the film is something that's very reflective of what we currently see. Uh, but going back to the point of what caused uh, what caused this to happen, I think one of the film's strengths is the fact that it doesn't give you something to latch onto as a why, because as soon as we have a why, we start to unravel even more logical conclusions. And we can try to like uh, describe the world or describe what would be different in the world predicated on what happened. I feel like if the film told you that it was a religious occurrence, then it would be something where we start to question the behavior or if it recur, if it was something that uh, mankind um, brought upon itself, again, it's something that you could kind of try and uh, create a prescriptive behavior as to how people should act under those circumstances. The fact that we aren't given a why it allows us to focus on the fact that there is this just complete disarray from things falling apart. And we don't try to like talk ourselves in or out of what's occurring. We're, we're simply just watching it happen. It's kind of like, I don't know, this is a bad example, but if someone just said they're going to light off a bunch of fireworks, you don't say why. You just watch it happen and you appreciate it without really questioning it. Whereas if you got the why, then it might inhibit your ability to just observe and be aware of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. There's also another element or a point in this film when, uh, what's keys like, what's that lady who's traveling with key? Uh, oh, the uh midwife. Miriam. Yeah. She's, she and key and Theo go to Jasper's place and he's like, listening to their conversation about faith and like determinism, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, and Jasper says, why bother if life is going to make its own choices? So I think Yana, you mentioned something about something similar to this, like a few minutes ago. Yeah. I just think that humans vastly overestimate the amount of control they have over things in general. For example, there are some people who think that hospitals actually just kill more people than they than they save because we've created an environment for like dis diseases to spread fucking rampantly. And so when you think about things like that, and it doesn't even have to be diseases, it's just more broadly, we think that we are making changes. We think that we are affecting the world around us and we have all of this autonomy and ability to conquer things. I think that that's a bit of a fallacy and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing that we can just accept the fact that maybe we don't have as much control as we possibly do. Um, for so many people that adds to angst 
and dread, but it doesn't necessarily have to, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, it kind of just goes into what, what uh, the guy was saying. What's his name? Theo or Jasper? Yeah, Jasper is yeah, Jasper. the old guy. Yeah, and I guess he's the one who's kind of echoing this kind of sentiment, basically saying, you know, faith, you have faith in your fellow human beings. You think that you can use whatever force it is to bring you two together. But at the end of the day, chance can totally win the day. And I actually think that that's the case more often than not. I think one thing's for certain is that this discussion in this movie did not really help my existential dread at all. Did it make it worse? Or? I, in, in all seriousness, I, I think it made it a little bit better simply because, like, you know, there's this certain futility of it all. And I feel like there is such an emphasis on the future in uh, present ideologies, yet, uh, like, the present is something that is incredibly important as well. So there is a certain amount of limit, uh, liberation. I think what um, what this film kind of enlightened me towards was the fact that individual ideologies and um, individual desires is not always in line with societal ideologies and societal desires. And it's incredibly situational as to which one takes precedent. I think that there are examples of both of these gone too far in this film. People putting the individual um, a little bit too high on that spectrum. Um, maybe you have the case of the cousin just only looking out for his own self-interest. Um, but then you have the case of the fishes who they think that the good of society is so all-important that they are willing to go and take about any action to bring about what they think is the betterment of society as well without taking into account any sort of individual um, interest or well-being. So I think that there are examples of both extreme ends of the spectrum in this movie. Yeah, exactly. And then you have Theo, who's kind of in the middle of it, who takes the selfless action because he recognizes something that's larger than him and larger than the people around him. Yeah, and you know what? Although there's going to be one example that kind of contradicts what I'm going to say here, but he really does have some sort of concern for that individual level as well and his fellow human being. So often he has a chance to shoot someone or, you know, use extreme violence against the people who are trying to kill him. And he actually takes a route that is just wholly different and avoids killing people or, you know, giving them harm. Even though he might not see their actions as right, he does, he really does have some sort of level of concern for both of these things. Um, that being said, he does smash the, the, the Irish yeah. or Scottish guy's head in with that fucking battery, which is so gruesome. So there is one exception. But I mean, it's hard to uh, it's hard to be violent when you got flip-flops on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Where do we want to go from here? My only other question for you is like, what is the reason behind the name of this film? Why Children of Men? So I did read that in the original book, the original publication, it was men that became infertile and it was changed for the movie. And it was females who became infertile. So I wonder if the name is still kind of a remnant of that plot point where it was called Children of Men as it was men who could no longer have children. Thus there was the emphasis on men. But perhaps the name was kept that way for the movie with men being mankind as opposed to men, the gender. For the book on the Wikipedia page, it's like a Bible passage, the title. Okay. 
Uh, do you want to read from the Wikipedia? Do you want me to read from the Bible? <laughs> um, whip it out, whip it out. Children of Men is a Catholic allegory derived from a passage of Scripture in the Bible, Psalm 90. Oh, that's my favorite song. Okay, well, I mean, that answers it. But I like no uh, no I liked your answer, Brendan. Hold up. I just have to... So I googled Psalm 90 just because I wanted to see what it was. And the Wikipedia page for Psalm 90 it starts off with the most descriptive sentence I've ever read. Psalm 90 is the 90th psalm from the Book of Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I don't know. Anything else you guys want to touch on uh, with this film? Other than it's fucking awesome. So I was kind of intrigued by the ending because... The whole movie, to me, I was watching it, and there's a lot of internal conflict where it has points of optimism and points of pessimism. Did it not seem a little incongruent for it to have such a quote-unquote happy ending where she's having the baby, she names it Dylan, Theo gets fulfillment, and they get to this boat? Yeah. I love when films end on crippling and crushing and heart-wrenching endings. Um, and so for the boat not to have come at the end of this film, it does. I would have loved that. Oh, oh, for it to not come. Yeah. But you don't, it's, for me, I thought it was a neutral ending. You don't know, like, whether or not she has a good time on the boat. <laughs> That's true. That's true, right? You don't necessarily know. Yeah. If you don't even know if it picks her up. <laughs> it just drives me. <laughs> it could just be a simple fishing boat <laughs> with, fi- with fishers on it. <laughs> Which, so by the way, like way. the boat gave no indication of human project. So then maybe the ending is an incredibly appropriate ending because it allows you to project your own perception on the film onto it. Like if you think that it's a film of optimism, then you see an optimistic ending. If you think it's a film about crushing that hope and optimism, then you can come up with the arguments that depicted in that light. Yeah, her boat just gets hit by a huge wave. Wake. <laughs> the baby drowns. She she uses the baby as a flotation device. <laughs> Somehow swims back to shore and then gets thrown into the refugee camp and uh, lives out her one. days. <laughs> yeah, interesting point, Brennan. I will say, though, some slight disagreement. I think that the main character, Theo, unambiguously gets his happy ending. Yeah. He has completed his journey. Yeah. He has reached his self-fulfillment. And the fact that he dies at this moment pretty much means that it doesn't, like whether or not the human project is real or not, he has gotten his happy ending. So I would at least say that. Yeah. Maybe there's a negative spin to put onto that as well. But yeah, I don't know. I never really thought about the fact that the boat is not necessarily the human project, right? Sure, Theo gets his quote-unquote happy ending, but like, what does that say about his happiness then? If it's, I mean, if it's based completely on this perception that uh, I don't actually remember. Does he die before or after we see the light of the boat? Before. So he doesn't even know that the boat is coming, really. Yeah, and so I think that us as the viewer, we don't, yeah, maybe he's not... Um, personally, yeah, I'm just thinking like subjectively for him, whether or not the boat comes doesn't matter. He goes from being completely nihilistic to actually having accomplished something and gotten this woman through struggle, birthed her, uh, daughter and accomplished all that he could have accomplished in terms of his human capacities. So that is entering into 
death as full and as accomplished as possible from his subjective point of view. But whether or not he, and I actually think that whether or not he actually succeeded and whether or not the boat is of the human project or not has little to no effect on that part. But yeah, at the end of the day, pretty miserable existence. For how long it it can potentially change. And there's, there's so much about this movie that it tries to, um, tries to like tear you in different directions with Theo being like this one like little beacon of hope through most of it where he seems like the one person who has real true morals um so yeah to see him to at least see like him get his happy ending and I honestly like I would say Jasper even has like a bit of a happy ending as well despite being gunned down the fact that he is sacrificing himself for something that is a greater cause like those characters I think they do get a happy ending Maybe there's a bit of willingness in saying that it's a happy ending, but it's good to see them, the characters who have uh, the most moral compass within the movie, actually get something. Yeah, Yeah, totally agree. Okay, well, I've blown my entire load of notes. I have nothing else. Yeah, I think that's about it for me. I was done my notes like 20 minutes in. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. Yeah, I don't know. Any final thoughts? If not, I think great fucking episode. I just want to say one last thing because this is my absolute most favorite part about the entire movie is when he's asking Key about the pregnancy and she says, I've never had sex. I'm a virgin. And you're like, oh my God, it's the Bible. And she's like, nah, I've shaked so many dudes. I don't know which one it is. And like it, in so many ways, this movie sets itself up for like this, uh, like this very biblical story, like this very, um, miraculous story and well like yeah the pregnancy is a miracle the fact that it it sets you up for this expectation of like this is something of such grand significance like no it's just random chance i really love trolling the whole time yeah (laughs) because there's so much in life that is predicated on random chance and um why shouldn't a miracle or why shouldn't this occurrence then we do not be predicated on random chance but everything needs to have the grandiosity going into it that is coming out of it. Amen. Amen.